Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and our guest today is Michael West, Professor in Organisational Effectiveness and Innovation, Lancaster University, and Visiting Fellow to the King's Fund, the NHS Think Tank, formerly Executive Dean of Aston Business School. You can find Michael on Twitter at WestM61. Regular listeners will recognise that this is my second interview with Michael, so if you want some background, I would direct you to episode 13 of the Compassionate Leadership interview. In this present episode, we're going to focus on Michael's lockdown project, the book Compassionate Leadership, Sustaining Wisdom, Humanity and Presence in Health and Social Care. Rebel Base Media's studio is still closed, so today we find ourselves in Michael's study. So, after that somewhat lengthy introduction, Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you, Chris. How did the book come about? I know that you had the support of NHS Wales in writing the book. Did they ask you to write it or did you read my own book, Compassionate Leadership, Creating Places of Belonging and think I could do better than that? <laughs> uh, well, the genesis of the book, of course, we tend to tell stories in retrospect about how it all happened, but... I started practicing meditation in my first year in university and it's been a central part of my life ever since and of course that brought me into contact with teachings from various religious traditions including Buddhism and Hinduism and of course in all of these traditions and philosophies there's a strong stream and emphasis on compassion as fundamental. And at the same time, the work I was doing on leadership and culture um, over the years in manufacturing, finance, oil and gas, and particularly most of my work in the health service, was bringing me into contact with an understanding, I suppose, about the importance of positivity and relationships in teams and organisations as a prerequisite for effectiveness, for creativity, for innovation. And the health service in particular, with its fundamental value of compassion, it's a service which is or should be fundamentally about providing high quality, caring care for people, had that theme. And I suppose those, there was a confluence of those themes. And what the pandemic did was create a space, you know, amidst all of the tragedy and the difficulty, a space to bring together research evidence, wonderful case examples of where great things were being done, of um, practical ways forward in relation to how we develop compassionate leadership. So it was a great opportunity to have the space and time to really focus on doing that. And I was lucky enough, as you say, to have the support of Health Education Improvement Wales, who have initiated a 10-year strategy for developing compassionate leadership across the whole of health and social care in Wales and of the amazing Swirling Leaf Press, which is a one-person part-time GP publisher, Dr. Ratna Chawla, who was as committed to this project as, as I was. Organisational culture is a recurring theme in the book. How would you characterise a culture of compassion? 
Well, it's a culture where people are present with each other in interactions that, in a sense, they connect as human beings. It's a culture where there is a blurring the boundaries between self and other, where there isn't aggression or narcissism or arrogance, where there's a strong emphasis on relationships, where people seek to understand each other's challenges and where there is a strong ethic of caring and of support for people who are experiencing challenge or difficulties and where the fundamental orientation is how can we help you how can we help each other in the book you say organizational culture is shaped by all of us but particularly its leadership do you think that enough is being done to develop compassionate leaders in the NHS over the last couple of years particularly there's been a, a real i would say sea change so i mentioned health education improvement wales the people plan for the nhs which is the core strategy for how we attract retain support staff has compassionate and inclusive leadership at its core in in scotland um, project lift which is a leadership development strategy for the whole of the public sector has compassionate leadership at its heart and in Northern Ireland for the last two years they've been pursuing a strategy of collective and compassionate leadership across health and social care but we also see lots of little eddies or swirls of um, development. Berkshire Health is retraining all its staff in compassionate leadership over half of them have been through that program in the Northwest Foundation program for for medical students, they are being taught compassionate leadership as well as administrators and um, supervisors and supporters. Here in South Yorkshire and Bassett Law, the integrated care system, which is responsible for the health and well-being of everybody in the region, are introducing compassionate leadership courses. But these are the beginnings of a process and what we need to ensure is that compassionate leadership is the norm rather than something just new and unusual in the NHS because the NHS is facing the biggest crisis in its history in terms of its workforce and its leadership and it's in the most parlous state it's been in since its creation in 1948. I've had the privilege of listening to you speak on compassionate leadership at an acute trust and I have to say that out of an audience of several hundred, no trust board members were present. If you don't have support from the very top, does it remain possible to create a compassionate subculture within your department? Well, all of us have within our gift the the choice to be present with each other, to attend to each other, to seek to understand each other's challenges and empathise and help. So we have that choice in our immediate circle, social environment, work team. We have the choice to behave in this way. And that's beneficial not only to those we lead, interact with, but beneficial to us. So that's something, uh, you know, we know that leaders at any level in any part of an organisation can do and they can nurture subcultures if you like of compassion in their area but you're right it's really important as well Uh, what we found in the work we've been doing on changing culture in NHS trusts over the last six years now is that without the support of the board it becomes much harder 
So a lot of my work is is not only talking to the kind of large audiences that you describe, but also talking to boards. So um, last week I spent a, a morning with a board here in Sheffield. Next week I'm spending a morning with a board in Bristol. And I speak, I, I spend a lot of time trying to interact with leaders from the national organisations because they are part of the problem and part of the solution. If we can transform the cultures of the national organisations, particularly in England, which tends to be a very top-down, repressive sort of culture, if we can transform those organisations and those leaders, then then we will make much more progress. But it is heartening that the People Plan, the National Strategy for England, does put compassionate and inclusive leadership right at the core. Coaching and mentoring receive no less than a dozen mentions in your book. And in separate interviews, I discovered that Dame Jackie Daniel of Newcastle-upon-Tyne Hospitals is a qualified coach, as is the chief executive of NHS England, Amanda Pritchard. What contribution do coaching and mentoring make to a culture of compassionate leadership? Well, coaching and mentoring are fundamentally about being present with another, attending to them, listening with fascination, providing this space for people to articulate their thoughts, to explore challenges, to be comfortable with ambiguities and uncertainties, to reframe their worlds, their difficulties, their successes, their joys, their relationships. Um, And also coaching and mentoring is about blurring the boundaries between self and other. And so I think that what coaching and mentoring do is in a way to formalise some of the behaviours that um, uh, underpin what we understand compassion to be about and compassionate leadership to be about. And by formalising it, they enable people to, I suppose, grasp the behaviours and we're also able to evaluate the effectiveness of those behaviours in terms of the outcomes for people. So I think coaching and mentoring are hugely helpful And at the same time, these are behaviours that all of us can practice every day, in every interaction, uh, in every relationship in our lives. So we don't have to wait to become a coach or a mentor in order to uh, model compassion. You say experiencing compassion for others shapes individuals' appraisals about themselves. Could you say more about that? So I think when we experience an interaction with another who is truly present with us, it enables us to be more present with ourselves. So in the, in the stillness and the space of being present, we're having a conversation here, you and I, and if I'm truly present with you and hearing what you say and engaging with you without being distracted by the flotsam and jetsam of my ruminations about the past and anxieties about the future and how I'm presenting myself. If I'm truly present with you, then it enables both of us to be present, for you to be present with me, me to be present with you. And and as I've kept saying, it blurs the boundaries between self and other. And the fundamental reality of our existence, I think, is about relationships. It's about our relationships with each other as human beings. It's about our relationship with the rest of biodiversity. It's about our relationship with the planet. It's about our relationship 
with this great mysterious existence. And the more we're able to connect, the more we feel a sense of connection with each other, the more we feel a sense of connection, I think, and safety with everything. And in a way, I think our fundamental existential challenge as a species is to begin to understand our interconnection with the rest of biodiversity, with the planet, with the universe, and with each other, so that we stop, as it were, being so focused on what I can get for me. We stop being so focused on uh, threats that others pose to me and instead see ourselves as interconnected, as more as one, really, and begin to take care of each other and of the planet that we have this incredible privilege of being a part of. I really love, love that answer, by the way. I think as you get older, you appreciate more keenly, in my experience anyway, that relationships are all that there is, and certainly all that matters in life. And you, you listen to some of our most uh, advanced th- theoretical physicists talking about the universe, people like Carlo Rovelli and, uh, and his thesis that if we're to make sense of the paradoxes and the uncertainties of our understanding of the universe, that it's probably that making sense is going to come from a recognition that all of this is about the flow of relationships between everything that exists within the universe. You also say it's a myth that performance cannot be managed with compassion. Can you explain how you bring compassion to performance management conversations? I think that compassionate leadership means a much stronger focus on performance management and performance than what can be a rather easy opt-out of command and control leadership. Because I think the danger with... there, There are many dangers with command and control leadership, not least the kind of arrogance that we know what is right. But often with command and control, there's this sense that I will tell people what to do and performance um, will follow. And I don't need to check up because I've told people what to do, so that's good enough. But with, I think, compassionate leadership, the the focus on performance derives not from some uh, choice about how I'm going to lead, the skill I'm going to use, but from a way of being as a human, as a person. Um, that I I want to be compassionate in all my interactions, including my leadership and my interactions in teams. And my compassion is focused on everybody that I interact with. In the case of the health service, it's for patients and service users. It's for the colleagues I work with who are under such pressure. It's for the teams or departments that I lead. And so I'm going to be very focused on ensuring that we're providing high quality, safe care and care that's continually improving. Why continually improving? Because if it's not improving, then it will be going backwards. So I'm going to be very focused on ensuring that we have high quality performance. And and where I'm sensing that there are problems through my conversations, then a compassionate leadership approach doesn't lead to an automatic reaction of blaming somebody. It's about, first of all, inquiring and listening, seeking to understand. And we know that people's behaviour is usually a consequence of the context they find themselves in, rather than their personality or some performance failings. 
people finding themselves, for example, in the NHS often, where they're trying to provide services in a context where they don't have sufficient staff, where they're overloaded with work, where they don't have the right facilities to provide care. And so the first step in compassionate leadership is about inquiring into the context. And it's also, compassionate leadership is about giving people honest, open, authentic feedback. This is what's going well, this is where there seems to be a problem. And then adopting a coaching orientation about setting goals and ensuring people have the resources they need to perform well, the right numbers of staff with the right skills, the right uh, equipment, the right training, so that they can perform effectively. And, and of course, there are cases where people behave badly. We do have people who are arrogant, narcissistic, aggressive, abusive, discriminatory. And if those behaviours don't change, then they are undermining of the well-being of others around. And they also damage our ability to deliver, in the case of the NHS, high quality care. And so people must then be managed compassionately out of their teams or organisations if those behaviours don't change. So, you know, this is certainly not some soft cushion scented candles approach to to leadership. On the contrary, I think it requires much more courage and authenticity to lead compassionately. Your previous book was entitled Effective Teamwork, and it seems to me that this book is informed in part by that one. One of the expressions you use is real teams. What makes a real team? So in the work that I've been involved with in the NHS over the last 30-odd years looking at teamworking, we found that people's understanding of what teamworking is was highly variable. So some people talk about, well, in in this organisation, we're just one big team. Or in this ward of 30 nurses, we're one team. Yet our understanding from the research literature about what teamworking is, is much more precise. It's a group of people who have a shared goal or shared objective or shared purpose and who have clear goals which derive from that overall purpose, four or five or six, who meet regularly to review how they're doing and to reflect on what they need to change in terms of the way that they're working together and what they're trying to achieve and how they're going about it. And then they adapt and innovate accordingly. And it's, uh, you know, we know that hundreds of thousands of years ago, human beings were working in teams. We've got archaeological evidence, anthropological evidence of early human groups herding horses into a canyon to kill them so that they would have food. Now, that's a very sophisticated type, type of teamwork. It involves shared goals, coordination. There's probably a lot of learning that comes out of each of those events. So a real team we've defined as a team that has shared goals and that meets regularly to review performance. That's simple. Of course, there's a lot of other things that constitute good team working, like clear roles and um, the absence of chronic interpersonal conflict and good communication and so on. But what's remarkable about the difference between what we would call real teams and pseudo teams, and pseudo teams are those that either don't have clear goals or don't meet regularly to review performance. In the NHS, we see the more people working in real teams, the better, dramatically better, well-being of staff. 
lower levels of errors that harm patients, better care quality, better financial performance, lower levels of staff turnover, and in the acute sector, dramatically lower levels of avoidable patient deaths. So for all of these reasons, getting team working right in healthcare organisations is fundamental. And it, the work I've been involved with in other sectors has replicated those findings that team working is, is the way that we do things best as a species. And we have to improve team working going forward, I think, to, to really derive many of those benefits that come from working collectively together in teams. You believe that compassionate leadership can help avoid scandals such as Midstaff's Bristol and Alder Hay. How is that the case? One of the major differences um, we've seen between high-performing trusts and poorer-performing trusts in the NHS is to do with the way senior leaders behave. So I was involved in work examining culture in NHS trusts across the whole of England back in 2009 10 11, 12, with colleagues from a number of universities. And, and our focus was on examining the extent to which there were cultures of high-quality care across England following the staffs. We did a huge study. Um, it was actually a great, real, multidisciplinary, multi-professional team um, that was a joy to work in. And one of the key findings was how senior leaders behaved in the trusts that were not so effective, didn't demonstrate high quality care and performance, senior leaders tended to be very focused on meeting the needs of regulators, managing upwards. They were also, um, if they were out talking to their staff, they were out there what we called comfort seeking. So asking staff to tell them everything's okay. In the best performing organisations, what we saw was board members and leaders, executive teams, focused on their own vision for what they were seeking to achieve in the organisation and being less concerned about these other national bodies and regulators. For example, Northumbria NHS mm. Trust, led by Jim Mackey, who eventually became interim um, head of NHS England Improvement. His orientation was, don't worry about the regulators we'll pursue our own vision and in the process we'll meet the requirements of them. Those boards, those leaders were out in their organisation listening, talking to staff and doing what we called problem sensing. So they were they were trying to find out, find out what they didn't know that was problematic. And if you take somewhere like Northumbria, which is one of the best performing trusts, it has dramatically lower levels of staff stress compared with the rest of the NHS then what they've done over, over the last, I would say, five or six years is made patient experience and staff experience the central drivers of their strategy. So they're out there gathering information, listening to what staff have to say about their experience and problems all the time and what patients say about their experience and problems. They've got a chief experience officer on the executive team, Annie Laverty, let me give you an example. In the pandemic, they introduced an anonymous Facebook page, COVID Voice, for the organisation so that they could hear from staff what, what was happening. And they learned pretty quickly about how frightened many of the staff were about going into work without adequate PPE equipment. So they built a factory 
and hired local people and they produced over two and a half million gowns within the space of weeks and other pieces of PPE equipment for use by the trust and for the wider NHS. So in these cultures, they're demonstrating compassionate leadership and they're focused on finding out what the problems mm. are. You know, and, and our, you know, for me, one of the, if not the most worrying problem in the NHS at the minute and in social care is chronic excessive workload. It's the number one factor in staff stress, the number one factor in staff quitting. It's highly related to patient dissatisfaction and to lack of quality improvement. But I think leaders don't want to talk about it because they don't have solutions. And that's not compassionate. You know, we must be talking about work overload in every board meeting, every departmental meeting, every appraisal, every team meeting, because it's this it's the elephant in the room, as it were. And compassionate leadership is about leaning into the problems of the other in a caring, present, concerned, compassionate way. You contend that compassionate leadership is one of the keys to innovation. Can you make that connection for us? Uh, let's go back to infancy. Uh, you know, we know that children who have secure attachment as they grow up behave very differently from children who have an anxious attachment or who have even an avoidant relationship with their parents. So Mary Ainsworth Bell's research in Uganda back in, I think it was the, gosh, 1960s and 70s, studying child-parent attachment relationships and subsequent research by John Bowlby and others showed how the differences in how children, young children growing up behave dependent on the attachment relationship. So if you observe, let's say, mothers and children in a park where children have an anxious relationship with the mother, they never know whether she's going to be present, available, kind. They tend to hover around her. When children have a secure relationship with the parent, they they go out and explore a bit, come back, go out and explore a bit further, come back, go out and explore a bit further, come back. So what compassionate leadership does is creates a psychologically safe environment for people in teams and people that we lead. So they know that they have a leader who is listening, who's supporting, who's concerned, who is present. And so that enables the risk-taking that's associated with innovation. You know, the child going from the mother is taking a bigger risk each time, but they and they build a sense of safety through that. So what we see in teams with compassionate leadership is a sense of psychological safety. There's a shared purpose, there are climates of learning and innovation rather than fear and blame. People talk about errors and things that go wrong because they're not afraid to. So consequently, those errors and things that go wrong are addressed and we develop new and improved ways of doing things. There's frequent contact between people, real contact, and that builds trust and safety. There are climates of valuing difference of opinion and leaning into talking about differences of opinion and conflicts and working through them and that builds greater psychological safety and it creates compassionate leadership creates climates of of humility and and caring and mutual support rather than arrogance or narcissism so the point is that when we feel safe we're more likely to try out to take the risk to try out new and improved ways of doing things and we know that when people feel positive emotionally, that also leads to more creative thinking. 
people think more divergently when they feel positive. So, so for all of these reasons, compassionate leadership is so important for innovation. I was greatly encouraged to see NHS Wales publish their compassionate leadership principles that they co-created with you. Are you hopeful that NHS England and NHS Scotland will follow their lead? I talk with um, colleagues in NHS Scotland regularly and um, they have a huge programme, as I mentioned earlier, called Project Lift, which is for the whole of Scottish Government. There is an enormous wave of momentum in Scotland to develop compassionate and inclusive leadership across the whole of health and social care and the um, the public sector generally. I was recently recently at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow for their annual conference. And I think every single presentation at that meeting from senior leaders in Scottish Health Service to people who led inquiries into bullying and harassment in Grampian and to practitioners, senior physicians and surgeons, was focused on creating kinder, more caring, more compassionate communities in Scotland. So I'm enormously optimistic about the direction of travel. And one of the advantages of Scotland and Wales is that there aren't so many layers of hierarchy between people in health service organisations and ministers and and first ministers. In England, we're making great progress, as I've said, because the People Plan has compassionate and inclusive leadership at its core. And there are there are many initiatives that are being developed. I'm currently in discussion with the Leadership Academy about a whole series of podcasts on compassionate leadership. And there are so many requests from different organisations to develop compassionate leadership and to have programmes and modules for developing compassionate leadership that it feels really encouraging. There is a problem with the English system, I think, is it's a highly regulated top-down system. We have these huge entities, NHS England and Improvement and uh, CQC and so on, and we've got more, I think, more interference by politicians than is helpful or healthy. Some of the recent pronouncements from government about face-to-face contacts with GPs and some of the demands from the government about reducing the backlog don't demonstrate compassion and don't demonstrate an understanding of what the service is facing. So I think we need you know, to have a groundswell, a bottom-up movement that speaks to those in power that says, if we're to create a compassionate health and social care service and a compassionate community, a compassionate country, then you as leaders at every level have to model compassion as individuals and you also have to model compassion as institutions so that the national bodies demonstrate that they listen, that they understand, that they empathise and that they're there to help and then we'll truly bring about that revolutionary change. In your book, you give some beautiful examples of compassionate interventions by healthcare employers during the pandemic. Your personal favourite? I gave you the example of Northumbria creating a factory Mm. to produce PPE equipment. I think that was really brilliant. They also have a community bank in Northumbria so that they could support staff whose partners had lost their jobs during the pandemic. And I think that was deeply caring and compassionate. There are so many, Chris. I love the fact that Northern Ireland provided free parking for health and social care staff during the pandemic. 
and University College London created a space outside on the top of their building with lots of greenery and comfortable seating so that staff could go outside during their breaks, look up at the sky, get the the sense of connection and stillness from having a lovely place to rest and, and looking at nature around them. And there were just so many examples of that. But most of the compassion I saw was from individual practitioners to each other, people just going up and giving each other a hug or providing a cup of tea. And the, you know, the examples in social care of where people camped in the grounds of the so- of the care homes that they worked in so that they could just be there for their residents, not having contact with their families so they didn't bring the virus in. I mean, this is the most incredible compassion. And it's what we saw across the whole country, an upwelling of compassion. Mm. Millions of people volunteered formally and informally to to help. And and that's typical of what we see in disasters, that, that um, populations, contrary to what political elites believe, they don't riot, they don't loot, they don't kill, they're not selfish, they help. And people protected the NHS, they staved stayed at home, they saved lives, they looked after their neighbours, they clapped on Thursdays. And, you know, we were late putting in place a lockdown because the political elites believed that people wouldn't go along with it. But the reality, when we look across disasters over geographies and over history, is that typically people behave with compassion in these times. There's a wonderful book that describes many of these case studies by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell. It's a magisterial investigation of disasters and the upwelling of compassion from populations that typically emerges. By my reckoning, you've written or edited 21 books now, not including second and third editions. Will there be a 22nd or are you just about ready to draw a line under your prolific writing career, Michael? So... um, at the moment, the plan is I'm I'm uh, revising the teamwork book you referred to and um, feeling very guilty because I'm not making the progress I should be making to have that completed by February next year, 2022. And beyond that, I have um, an already started project, which is quite different, which is focused on meditation. I, the, the title of the book at the minute in my head is Simply Being, the the practice, the science and the pleasure of meditation. And then after that, maybe gardening. (laughs) Michael, thank you for your hospitality today and for exploring just some of the themes of your excellent book. I can wholeheartedly recommend it to listeners. Not only is the main body of text thought-provoking and comprehensive, but it includes a useful appendix of questionnaires and other resources. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show chris at danflask-consulting.com. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, both mine and Michael's on Amazon. This episode was recorded on location in Sheffield and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.